this style of practice. It can, as I said the other day, it really just introduces us to how our minds do what they do. And, you know, it often takes us right into our patterns, our habits. It opens us to see just exactly how our minds do what they do and the struggles that we have. The first time I spent seven, almost seven weeks with Utejaniya, I was about two weeks into the retreat and um, I was experiencing a lot of ups and downs and seeing a lot of suffering and a lot of the mind doing all kinds of yucky things and crazy things. And and at some point my mind went something like, it's two weeks into the retreat. Usually my mind is more settled by now. You know, this practice doesn't work very well or it was going somewhere like that. And fortunately it didn't take too long before I recognized that, you know, this style of practice doesn't aim to settle the mind. It aims to show us our dukkha, to help us to understand our dukkha. And in that moment of that reflection, it's like, oh, right, this is dukkha. Duh. You know, this is what the Buddha says we're supposed to understand. This is what the Buddha says, you know, the first noble truth, understand dukkha. And uh, just that reflection in that moment Oh, dukkha, that's what's happening here. The mind is seeing dukkha. And it doesn't like it. So it does, I think this kind of practice does take us right to, if we're, if we're observing our minds, it, this practice points out to us the ways that we're holding, the ways that we're stuck, the ways that we suffer. And so difficulty is uh, a terrain that really helpful for us to navigate. We, we spend a lot of time navigating this terrain of dukkha. And what we've, you know, we've been saying, um, basic, the basic instruction is, you know, can you be with it? What is the experience of the difficulty? What is the experience of the dukkha? And what's your relationship to it? And that's the basic instruction. And We'll kind of say that over and over again in different ways. <laughs> and there are times, um, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to simply be with an experience, a difficult experience. Sometimes it can be challenging. And, uh, you know, there is a time for using our familiar tools from other practices. There's a time for engaging with... Um, the familiar, you know, if, if, if as, as you know, we've been saying, if it feels like you're going down a rabbit hole, pick another object. You could also pick another practice at that point. You know, it might be helpful if you're going down a rabbit hole to do some metta at that point. So there is a time for using our other tools to help to balance the mind. All of the Dharma tools point the mind in the direction of Dharma. So there's a time for that. And yet sometimes we, um, we may qu- kind of quickly want to go to our tools because it's so uncomfortable 
exploring dukkha. There's something in our minds that says, this can't be right. If I were practicing right, I wouldn't be experiencing X. And sometimes practicing means that we are being asked to experience whatever it is. We're being asked to experience X. We can be held sometimes by a kind of hidden belief that it's not possible to be uh, simply mindful of a given situation or a given mind state and that because of that hidden belief or hidden agenda, then I need to bring in some of my other tools. So we can sometimes kind of quickly move to our familiar practices when we meet our dukkha rather than exploring this simple what is this dukkha? So today I'd like to s- explore some tools I found through this practice that have helped me to meet difficulty and helped me to uh, kind of expand the terrain into which mindfulness can go. And that idea that, oh, it's not possible, or at least not possible for this mind to be mindful of, of something. One of the most powerful tools in my toolkit is the uh, deep, deep faith and confidence that it is possible to be mindful of pretty much anything. And if you find yourself with the thought, something like, uh, I can't be mindful while such and such is happening, question it. Instead, perhaps, if you hear yourself asking that question, how, I can't, or, or saying to yourself, I can't be mindful while this is happening, turn the question around. How might it be possible to be mindful while that is happening. And this curiosity, this curiosity is another big tool in, the, in my toolkit. This curiosity, I've, I've seen over and over again states of mind that I think, you know, mindfulness kind of just can't go there. And bringing a curiosity to the experience, way, you know, it's like, Actually, mindfulness can, can know that experience. If you think about spacing out, this seems to be one of those states that inherently seems to be non-mindful, right? I mean, spacing out. You're not mindful in spacing out. That's the way it seems at first glance. A spaced out state is a non-mindful state. Our usual uh, relationship with a spaced out state is not a mindful state. And yet it is possible to be aware of the mind, the state of mind of spacing out. This uh, came up in one of the groups, and I'll just describe this experience for myself. One of the first times I really clearly saw 
the mind being able to be uh, aware of spacing out. I was eating breakfast, and I was at home. I wasn't on retreat. I was at home. And, uh, you know, I was like exploring, okay, mindfulness while eating breakfast. And my mind had an agenda about what it meant to be mindful while eating breakfast. It meant in that moment, what it meant to me is that I knew the movements of the eating, the movements of the hands going to the mouth and the taste and the texture of the food. And so there was a directing of the attention. I was choosing, the mind was choosing what to pay attention to, that agenda of, uh, of the mind had the agenda that that's what it meant to be mindful of eating at that point. That's what it meant to be mindful at that point, to be mindful of the eating process. And yet my mind had other ideas. It was, um, it kept spacing out. It kept just going into that spaced out state. And um, I um, kept bringing it back. As soon as I would notice I was spaced out, it's like, oh, spaced out come back. Is that, that's a kind of common relationship we have with spacing out, right? This is a, what we think we're supposed to do. I'm spaced out. Oh, come back to an object. Pay attention to something. So that's what I was doing, kind of out of habit. Come back to the breakfast. Come back to the taste. Come back to the chewing. Come back to that. So I was doing that. And, I, and the mind kept spacing out. At some point, the mind, so this happened several times over breakfast, that the mind would space out and it, I would try to come back to some particular object. And at some point, the mind got the idea, well, God, the mind keeps spacing out. Let's see. So this is that question. Let me see if I can be aware of spacing out. What might that be like? Maybe I can follow the mind into spacing out. Maybe mindfulness can follow the mind into spacing out. And so I, I kind of just opened to that possibility. As soon as I felt the mind kind of pulling into that kind of hazy, fuzzy state, I just allowed the mindfulness to follow it. And lo and behold, I discovered I could be mindful of the mind hanging out in this hazy, fuzzy state. Kind of felt like my... It felt like... I went up here somewhere, you know, kind of felt like the mind kind of hung out, hovered up here somewhere in a kind of a zzz, buzzy kind of experience, hazy. Now in that state, kind of like I was talking ar- about around sleepiness this morning, there wasn't a an awareness of other sense experience. The mind was pretty much in that buzzy spacing state, but it was aware in that state. So without having the agenda or the need to be aware of something else while the mind was spaced out, the mind could be really fully, completely aware of spacing out. And lo and behold, while I was hanging out, aware of spacing out, within about 30 seconds, it was like the fog cleared, like, like, the, like the state just dissipated. Like the the spacing out had run its course, and the mind was then sitting. I was sitting at breakfast and again engaged with sights and sounds and smells and tastes. 
And in this was actually an important recognition for me because something I saw in that moment when the, the kind of the mind let go and the spacing out, it looks like the spacing out, allowing the spacing out, allowing the mind to go to that place and not fighting it, not resisting it, not having any agenda about anything that needed to happen with it. I recognized that what the mind wanted and needed in that moment was rest. It was really tired. And it was taking its rest. The mind was taking its rest. And when it had had its rest, it was done with that. And then it was attending to other things. So sometimes we have these ideas about, you know, like in that case, I had this agenda. I had this idea. Being mindful means something. Being mindful means paying attention to something in particular. And I was missing the fact that the mind not only had that agenda, but actually was really tired. And the effort to try to do something and stay present for something was like wearing the mind out. So just allowing it to do that, I discovered the mind could be completely present for that. So this, be, this, this is like expanding the terrain into which mindfulness can go. You know, this, this uh, opening to new areas. And we think, we, we may not, there's, it's so amazing how much we can be mindful of. I, I don't think there's anything we can't be mindful of. So, this notion of following the attention. In that case, it was like the mind was doing this, it kind of needed its rest, and it was trying to take its rest. And when I allowed that and, and see, you know, tried to have the, the, also the exploration was, can the awareness follow the mind, the, follow the attention to what it kind of naturally wants to do? That's one of those uh, ways in which we begin to expand the terrain of our mindfulness. I like following the attention. I reported this to Sayadaw Utejaniya on one uh, sitting, uh, at, at one uh, meeting. And uh, I described this, you know, following the awareness into various things. And he, he kind of got enthusiastic. He said, yeah, it's like, a, it's, like, it's like a dog. You know, the dog wants to go everywhere and sniff this and that and jump around and, like, see all this stuff. And, and all we have to do is hold on to the leash. You know, we don't have to try to control the dog. It's like, just hold on to that leash. So it's, it's, the, it's following. Your mind will... Uh, Sometimes, you know, sometimes the habits of our mind lead us into, uh, or the habits of our mind take us towards struggle, towards suffering. And the habits of our mind, you know, incline us towards the, the, you know, the, the defilements, or the defilements are, you know, operating. And yet we can be aware of the defilements. And as we've been saying, you know, the awareness of defilements in this um, kind of curious exploration, they're no longer functioning as defilements. And so working with difficulty, you know, we, 
we see, you know, in our in our exploration of what's happening moment to moment, our minds headed towards difficulty. Our minds in difficulty, in struggle. And we see the dukkha. We see the dukkha that we land in here. And often our agenda is how can I get rid of that dukkha? And we hear, and this came up in the in the uh, questions the other day, you know, it's like the Buddha said, abandon the unwholesome states. You know, when unwholesome states are happening, abandon them. And, um, and so, you know, how do I get rid of these unwholesome states seems in line with that abandoning. And yet the how do I get rid of unwholesome states that framing of it has some aversion to it. You know, we think, we think that, you know, hearing that teaching around what it, you know, abandon the unwholesome states. We often think that the work would be in the doing of abandoning. That that's where we would put our effort to do something to abandon that difficult state or abandon that unwholesome state. So we think that the the work is in the abandoning. And the the, the Buddha uses this word abandon. Um, it's a translation of a Pali term, but Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as abandon. And I like exploring this word because um, we don't we don't have often don't have such great connotations with the word abandon. Sometimes, you know, we think about abandoning something we're supposed to be taking care of, like abandoning a child or something like that. But I looked up several definitions, and there are several definitions that are very appropriate for our practice around abandoning. One of them is... Uh, the One definition of abandon is to leave a place because of danger. We leave a place because of danger. So this this means that we understand that there is danger. And, you know, it's like abandoned ship. You know, the ship is sinking. Not so, we, we, we know kind of viscerally, not so helpful to try to cling to that ship while the ship is going down. That there's a very natural movement to abandon that place because the mind understands the danger. Another definition that's appropriate is um, we abandon something when we understand it is not of value to us anymore. That we understand that, you know, we might ab- ab- abandon a, a, a broken down car when we understand that it's not going to get us anywhere. We, we leave that, we leave that and, and move on. So both of these definitions we can understand in, um, in our practice around looking at difficult states. The exploration is around understanding the difficult state. And as we understand that this difficult state may have some aspects of danger to it, you know, the 
we do we do understand that um, some of the, the some of the difficult mind states anger you know the greed and aversion we we begin to understand that they have a danger to them and and the understanding of that happens because we not because we tell ourselves oh this is dangerous I should abandon ship here, but because we have spent time exploring those difficult states and viscerally we begin to understand the danger of it. When the mind begins to understand the danger of unwholesome states, it begins to let go of those states very naturally. It's like, we don't have to work too hard. As the, as the mind begins to deeply understand the danger of our states, it begins to know how to let go. And likewise, the same kind of exploration of understanding our, um, our difficult states, our anger, our confusion, our frustration, our, our pride, our... our um, our greed, as we explore it, we also begin to understand that there's something a little off here. You know, we, we begin to explore this. And it's like, you know, what is this doing for me? How valuable is this? You know, something in our minds thinks greed is valuable. You know, some, some part of our minds, the way that we've explored um, things, you know, the way that our, we've, we've been conditioned in our lives is, you know, greed gets us what we want. We get what we want, it feels good. You know, so some part of our mind thinks that the way to get what we want and the way towards happiness is through this greed and through getting what we want. And so some part of our mind thinks it's valuable. And yet as we begin to explore the greed itself, we begin to see not only the danger in the greed, but we begin to see that, you know, it gets us something. It gets us something for a few moments. But how, how satisfying is it really, that thing that we get? How long does it last? So we begin to, to, to get a taste or a, a the flavor of these states of mind that we are so habitually conditioned to somehow at some it's a it's at a very deep level the belief in the value of these states you know it's it's not it's it's often not so conscious it's not so present it's you know it, it's amazing you know how i'm kind of stunned sometimes when i'm really present this happens on retreat. You know, I'm really present. And, you know, I, I, I watch, you know, I see, I see the greed around having a piece of chocolate. You know, something so small, something so small like having a piece of chocolate. Seeing that greed and seeing just how much the mind really believes having that chocolate is going to make me happy. It's, yes, that, that's going to do it for me. Some other part of my mind knows it's only going to do it for me for like a few few minutes or it's amazing actually this was it. 
this last retreat that I did, the pleasure of chocolate actually lasts a long time. <laughs> I was kind of shocked. You know, I thought it would last as long as, you know, you know, just until it dissolves in the mouth. But, you know, it makes you feel good. Chocolate makes you feel good. It, it lasts about five minutes, you know, the happiness of chocolate. But, you know, still, that's like five minutes. <laughs> and then the mind is like, oh, oh, that happiness is gone. <laughs> what else can I want? <laughs> And so, you know, it's like that the, the, at such a deep level, the mind believes this story that having what I want is going to make me happy. And yet, as we begin to observe this, as we watch it, as we see the pattern happen over and over again, the mind begins to understand that that is not so valuable to us. Not only the greed is not so valuable, but the, the having that piece of chocolate, you know, well, in that exploration, it was kind of like, you know, I, it, was, it was really interesting to see actually just how, you know, almost like, why is it that I'm so attached to chocolate? It makes me feel really good for five minutes. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. So, yeah, I mean, we can explore these things. And we, we can begin to understand the, um, you know, what is actually valuable. And the awareness, the mindfulness and wisdom point the way to a value that is way beyond five minutes of happiness from chocolate. Way beyond. So with our difficult states, working with our struggles, you know, sometimes they feel so... Oh, it's like there's so many different layers and threads and things tied up with knots around knots around other layers. And it's like it feels so complex, feels so complicated, especially our habitual patterns, the ones that we've engaged in a lot. really helpful in the kind of the beginning of this exploration bring in right few from the beginning you know reminding yourself the aim here is understanding the understanding will allow a transformation the aim is not to get rid of it the wisdom will transform the state. The wisdom will transform us. The wisdom will transform the mind. And so this is a really helpful thing to remind ourselves as we walk into a, as we meet something really challenging. A reminder, the, the, the point of practice here, the purpose of practice is to understand this. Can you take the perspective of the naturalist with the difficulty? You know, a naturalist exploring something very complex in nature. By just watching, by witnessing, by witnessing, by witnessing. So the, the exploration to begin, bring in that perspective. The aim is to understand, not to get rid of. 
can be helpful to remind ourselves this is a mind state. It's just another object. All objects are equal in the eyes of mindfulness and wisdom. Any object, when met with awareness and wisdom, has the possibility of pointing out deep, deep wisdom to us. Even seeing a thought arise and pass take us to very deep understanding. We have to be present for it. So a reminder, just bringing in, sometimes this um, kind of conscious bringing in of wisdom, um, Saito Utejaniya calls it borrowing wisdom. It is not wisdom necessarily that we have internalized for ourselves, but it's wisdom that comes through hearing the Dharma, through hearing the teachings, through hearing the uh, the um the the tools that we explore so we can remind ourselves any object can lead to deep understanding an object is just an object all objects can lead to wisdom all objects can bring understanding so curiosity i talked about that We've been talking about that, bringing a curiosity to the exploration rather than a sense of, oh, I remember on one retreat I was, it was, I'll call it my self-hatred retreat. You know, there was a lot of self-hatred coming up. And initially it was kind of like, self-hatred again. Okay, self-hatred. And it was kind of a resignation or something, you know, just a feeling, a little bit of depression that came with that exploration. It's like, ugh, you know. There was an idea or a belief that um, observing self-hatred was like not on the main path. I had like taken a detour and it's like, okay, we have to explore this detour. That was kind of my approach. The way my mind was relating to it. And at some point there became more of a shift. It's like, okay, this is what's happening. And when there was kind of that, I think I talked about surrender mind at one point, you know, surrendering to, this is what's happening. Can I be interested in it? And when the mind shifts to that perspective of interest as as opposed to resignation, the retreat, it was like, it, it became incredibly clear that this, pathway that I thought was a detour, not on the direct route to Nibbana. That was my idea. You know, that self-hatred, that's not on the direct route to Nibbana. Whatever is arising in the present moment is the path. Absolutely. And I, that's what I discovered. That no, no, this is where insight can arise. This is how the heart and mind can open. This is the path right here, right now. It's not a detour. It is absolutely the path. So these difficult states are not in the way of practice. They are the practice when they arise. And that's a little bit more wisdom that can support us. Sometimes we can borrow that wisdom, even if we're not right there. 
you know, just bringing those thoughts into our mind. This is a skillful use of thought in the practice. We can remind ourselves, this is not a detour. This is the path. Wisdom can develop right here. And it can be interesting. So this is, this, this is some of those tools that I'm talking about that helped me to uh, meet difficulty, helped me to expand the terrain into which mindfulness can go. A couple of other wisdom reflections that um, you know, have come up in the groups. One, just a reminder, I said it earlier, this is dukkha. When I frame it that way to myself, this is dukkha. It takes me to a reminder that, oh yes, the Buddha talked about the first noble truth. This is, this is what he said we need to study. Understand dukkha. That was his enjoinder about the, the first noble truth. Understand it. So this is dukkha. That kind of, that shorthand reminded me all right, ha, huh. this, this isn't a problem. This is how the path can deepen right now. So it's kind of that, that this is dukkha, that's kind of shorthand for that understanding. This is the path. Understanding dukkha, this is the path. And another um, reflection we can borrow, bring in, is a reminder of, well, I mean, we can, we can bring in the three classic um, uh, insights of Vipassana, even though we may not, we're not in the experience of them, you know, impermanence, unreliability, dukkha, and not, not self. So we can bring in a reminder, this is impermanent. This is just an object that's arising in the present moment. It will come, it will go. That, that can be uh, a little bit of wisdom you add to the mix. Again, skillful use of thought. Add to the add these dharma reflections to the mind when you're working with difficulty. The the reflection on the the third one. This is not self. The the way for me this is helpful. I mean, the Buddha actually suggested a reflection. One should understand this is not me. This is not mine. This is not who I am. That's how the Buddha phrased it. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not who I am. Suggesting we use that reflection in our minds. Straight from the Buddhas. Well, straight from the suttas. Another way of framing that same understanding is... um, or, or a, 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 a version of that understanding is this is nature. This is causes and conditions. Saito Utejaniya suggested using this is nature a lot. And I started using it, you know, just dropping it in every now and then. This is nature. This is nature. And it was amazingly freeing just to remind myself this is nature. Again, it reminded me of that uh, being a naturalist, of exploring processes in nature. And what's happening in this mind and body is a process of nature. It's, it's lawfully arising. It's coming up as a result of causes and conditions. It's not just kind of visiting out of left field. There, there's 
causes and conditions that have led to the arising of this experience. It is a lawful unfolding that this is arising. It is a natural unfolding that this is arising. This is nature. It takes the sense of, this is my problem, this is, I did this, i am got to fix this, I've got to, it takes that kind of out of it a little bit, just to remind ourselves, this is nature. So one of the um, explorations around using these wisdom reflections, if you use them, if you, if you play with them when there's something difficult happening, and I'll just remind you of the ones I've mentioned, you know, um, the aim is to understand anything. We can be mindful of anything. Um, this is the path. This is where wisdom can unfold. An object is just an object. Any object is as good as any other object for awaking, awakening. This is dukkha. This is nature. And some skillful uses of uh, thought. And, you know, it's helpful in exploring these kinds of wisdom reflections. You may find language that works for you. You, know, you may find, uh, you know, ways of expressing the, the wisdom in your own mind. I encourage that, actually. Make it your own. Make it your own um, way of expressing it to you. It will land more that way. When you use these wisdom reflections, check and see how does it impact your experience. See what happens. How do these reflections... You bring thought into the mind... You know, we see this happen all the time. A thought, and we don't necessarily bring a thought into the mind, but a thought comes into the mind around, you know, that that frustrating situation we were dealing with three days ago. That thought comes into the mind and experience shifts. What happens when you bring Dharma wisdom into the mind? Experience can shift we may see there's a little more space for allowing the experience, for meeting, for getting to know, for, for, for being able to meet the experience when we touch into that Dharma wisdom. So in terms of meeting those experiences, so you know, the, the using, using the tool of wise view to reflect can allow us to be with an experience sometimes a little bit more easily. And still we may have this sense of a very complicated, complex, many-layered mess of stuff. And uh, we can bring an agenda to that kind of complex set of mind states. You know, we see, you know, it's like like with the self-hatred. It's like, wow, there's unworthiness in there and anger and confusion and oh, frustration and self-righteousness and it's a mess in there. You know, it's like, what's the middle of it? And there's a kind of belief we might have that, and there was kind of, when in seeing that self-hatred over and over again, you know, my mind said, oh, this is so deep. This is so deep. I'm going to have to be fully enlightened for this to go away. That was my belief. That, that I, you know, it's like, it, it felt like there were so many tentacles to so much of my past. So it felt so complicated and so complex. And it's like there was a belief somehow that I had to get to the bottom. 
had to find the thing in the middle. It's like, pull all of this stuff out of the way and find what's in the middle. And then that, that's what, where I'll, I'll be able to release it. It's like, I felt like, I felt like I had to go all the way back to, I don't know, in the womb or something, you know, find out where this whole pattern began. And then maybe I could be free of it. That was the way, well, that was what the mind was saying. You know, it, it had that, that kind of belief. So here's some more wisdom for you. Diving in, trying to find that bottom bit, trying to find the middle of the whole thing, actually doesn't serve us very well. What does serve us is more of a, wow, this is a mess. What's obvious about this mess? You know, it's kind of like, have a really big, wide arm to hold the whole confusing mess of it. And as you hang out with that, in that way, it's kind of like various threads are going to just become obvious. You know, what's obvious about this mess? Oh, confusion. That's a thread that's obvious right now. Oh, contraction. Oh, oh, that's obvious right now. Anger. That's obvious right now. It's just like settle back and allow the, it's like allow the, it's like we touch the surface of that big mess. And the, the various layers of that mess begin to kind of bubble up to the surface, begin to present themselves. So we don't have to actually go digging to find them. It's more like, it's, it's more organic. It's more friendly in a way to just hold the whole mess and let what wants to show itself in this moment show itself a lot of the layers will begin to become apparent in that way. So it's really helpful to notice one, one of the things I've seen in my own experience with those kind of deeply complex patterns is um, that there's some way, you know, that I kind of have this idea about what does lie in the middle. You know, some belief or some sense of, Oh yeah, okay, under this big mess, that's got to do with this thing, you know, it's, uh, that's got to do with, you know, this big mess of depression that I'm experiencing right now, that's got to do with the way, you know, this was, this happened at Shweyumin, actually, I was noticing a lot of mild depression as I was doing walking meditation at the monastery, and I noticed that it kind of got stronger as I saw pairs of people walking together. You know, in the monastery we were allowed to talk and it just seemed to be the, it was like the six o'clock promenade at the monastery, you know. Uh, people kind of hooked up and walked and talked during that period. And, you know, I'd go out there and I'd see people walking and talking. It's like, whew. And I would go into this collapse. And, you know, I could create the story about this. It's like, oh, yeah, this has to do with, you know, when I was on the playground and I was a little kid and, you know, I was not, you know, I was always the one left out. And, you know, this ties into that whole pattern of feeling left out and lonely and isolated. And, you know, this goes back to when I was three years old or, you know, so the mind could go there. And we often have this kind of thing, this kind of assumption about our states of mind. There may be some truth to it, 
But what I'd like to suggest is if you see something like that, if you see some kind of assumption about what a pattern is uh, related to, hold that assumption really lightly. Kind of like, okay, use that as a hypothesis. You know, set it to the side, but just notice the experience. When we are exploring our experience with some agenda or some hypothesis in mind, you know, suppose you're looking at something and you think, you know, I know what's in the middle of this. Fear is in the middle of this. You start looking, it's like, is there fear there? You probably find it. We have, our minds have a great capacity to create what we look for. So really helpful about assumptions and ideas. Kind of set them to the side. Uh, Let them be to the side. Um, Hold them lightly. Hold our assumptions lightly and just see, can you, can you just be with this experience? This is like a data gathering, a slow process of data gathering. The data gathering, that's, that's the job of the awareness and wisdom is to gather data. And the wisdom will begin to put the pieces together. It's like, it's, it's amazing. You know, we don't have to figure it out ourselves. Wisdom begins to understand. Wisdom knows. Wisdom, with all of the data, as the mind with aware, in being aware with this pers- perspective of right view, the mind begins to gather, gather data, gather information, and it begins to understand how to use it to lead towards well-being. So sometimes in this kind of exploration, this uh, data gathering, use of questions can help to allow the mind to kind of spark some interest. You just play with this and see if this works for you. I had mixed results around the questions. Sometimes they really worked and other times not so much. So just see, you know, how they work. Saito Utejaniya recommends the use of questions as a way just to intrigue the mind. His experience, he reports his experiences, that when he asked the mind a question, the mind is kind of naturally oriented to trying to figure it out, and he didn't have to do the figuring out. I found that happens sometimes, and sometimes it, 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 it is an interesting thing. You drop a question into the meditation, and you might find that the mind begins to orient around exploring things to answer that question. Not that you're consciously doing it. So I, 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 I offer these questions with some... Um, um, you know, I, I want to just put out there to not... Asking these questions doesn't mean you try to sit there and find the answer. It's more like you drop the question into the meditation and just keep going. What's obvious? What am I aware of right now? And now, and now. You might notice when you drop in that question that what becomes obvious is kind of orienting around that question. If you don't find that, just go on with the meditation. Maybe that wasn't quite the question that the mind was really interested in exploring in that moment. So the basic practice is, what's obvious? What's obvious? Am I aware? What is the awareness knowing? 
and checking the attitude. We can drop in these questions, perhaps to help us, again, meet a difficulty. So here's some questions. Well, what's obvious? That's the first question. (laughs) That's the first one. How does this make the body feel? That's a good question sometimes because, you know, we, we might be, you know, in a state of mind and kind of stuck in our thoughts and the pull and push around it. And if we can drop in the question, how does this make the body feel? The mind might begin to settle out of the mental push-pull into the experience of the body. So that's a, a question. How does this make the body feel? An, an interesting question about difficult states and this one is interesting to just drop in and really have no agenda, no idea, no, in t- no, in- no direction for this one to head. What purpose is this serving? What purpose is this mind state serving? We might find to our surprise that it is serving a purpose completely out of what we had in our conscious awareness. What purpose is this serving? Sometimes, sometimes you know, there might be, the, 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 a state of mind might be, um, you know, somehow thinking that this is going to protect me. You know, this is going to, this is going to, this is going to make me safe. And that, Safety itself, you know, the the wish for safety is not an unwholesome wish. But the, you know, the way we relate to it, we the way we relate to the idea that we might not be safe, a lot of accretion can happen around that. A lot of layers of struggle can happen around that. Now this, this brings me to another piece, is sometimes with these, these um, patterns, these complex patterns. And I've certainly seen this. It's kind of like this whole thing is just a mess. This whole pattern, there is nothing worthwhile in this pattern at all. If I could take the scalpel and cut out the edges and just like jettison this whole thing, that would be good. But sometimes in the midst of a pattern like that. There's a thread back to some wish for happiness, a wish for safety, a wish for well-being, a wish for ease and peace. And the mind has kind of fundamentally misunderstood the direction of how that could happen and created this whole big mess of confusing stuff. But if we are trying to get rid of the whole thing, you know, some part of the mind is going, but no, I do want to be happy. I do want to be happy. And, and so there's a kind of a conflict in the mind if we're trying to put, put you know, to, to jettison some pattern, thinking it's completely a waste. You know, if we're trying to repress or get rid of it or, you know, figure out how to, to, to stop it. Sometimes there's that thread in the middle, that thread of wanting to be happy. 
that will not that will it will like you know it will that that thread of wanting to be happy is actually a wholesome wish and so it's not going to just allow itself to be jettisoned not going to allow itself to be tossed and so this exploration you know this uh, What's here? What's here? What's here? What's here? What's here? Allowing the threads to come to the surface. Somewhere in the midst of that we might see, oh, wow, wanting to be happy. I had this, as many of you have heard this story around observing that depression I talked about at Shui Yumin, you know, watching that pattern over and over again, just being with the pattern over and over again. Seeing the threads, watching it come and go. And um, at some point, seeing the, uh, I got to the place where I could be really comfortable with allowing it, allowing that depression. And I had all these ideas about this being like when I was like, you know, on the playground and, you know, the being abandoned and the being not included. It had all, I had the, the kind of idea that it probably had something to do with that. But I got really comfortable and just got to the place where, yeah, I can be with this feeling of depression. And it got really big. It felt like it expanded and, and just like expanded outside the whole room. It got really big, that feeling of depression. And I was just able to be with it. And then at some point, it's like the whole thing flipped and what I was experiencing was this beautiful state of metta. A very expansive state of love. And in the next split second, the mind jumped in with comments. This is stupid. This is sappy. This is corny. So I could see, actually in that moment, seeing, seeing the love and then seeing the mind's relationship to it. This is stupid. This is sappy. This is corny. It's like, oh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> the, the kind of this attitude of believing somehow that expansive, beautiful state of love is somehow not... I don't know, just the the, 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 the the rational mind felt like somehow this isn't this isn't what a good mind is supposed to be like. This kind of mind is in danger of being taken advantage of. So there was that relationship. And the the, the understanding at that point was like the depression was related to kind of holding down that metta. Now, it's, it's not that I was like, from that point on, living in this boundless metta, you know, just seeing that didn't make that belief go away. But it really shifted, it, it, it shifted the depression entirely. The de- depression went away on that retreat. I could see much more clearly what was happening. So this, you know, this just unfolded through this willingness to meet, to meet in this very organic way, this very natural way of what's here, what's here, what's here. Getting to the place where I could allow that state to be, the wisdom, the understanding began to transform.
one other, the last tool I'll drop in for this is, um, especially for these difficult patterns, these patterns that um, come back, show up over and over again, the ones that feel like they're kind of, you know, in the baggage, like we're carrying the baggage around, you know, it's like... uh, really helpful to recognize no we notice when they're present and that's kind of our emphasis okay there it is again yep there's self-hatred again there's anger again you know it's like okay we even it gets to the place where it's not even like again it's like oh there it is oh there it is again so it's got a lighter feeling to it that uh, noticing when it's present very important but we do have an emphasis on that sometimes. What I'd like to suggest, really helpful to notice when it's not there. Especially for the ones that uh, are so persistent and so potent for us. Notice when those states are not present. It's like the what we might call the underlying tendency to that state is still probably hanging around somewhere. But when those underlying tendencies are not being activated, the state is not there at that point. It's not like it's, you know, sitting some, somewhere. I, I, I kind of had that belief somehow that when I wasn't feeling self-hatred, it just meant that I was being deluded. That's what I believed, that I was being deluded. It was always there. I believed it was always there somehow. And then beginning to explore it coming and going, it's like, no, it's actually not here right now. Self-hatred is not present right now. What a gift to see when those habitual patterns are absent. What that seems to do is to help like poke holes in the identity of that pattern. You know, we believe it's so solid, so present. Like I believed it was just sitting there all the time. But no, actually, it's not always there. If it's not always there, it's not me. It's just a visitor. It comes and it goes. So noticing that, noticing that uh, presence and absence of our states. Also really helpful when it is present to notice the difference between what it's like when the mind can really just meet that experience. Oh, anger is happening. Depression is happening. Confusion is happening. Just aware of that it, with, uh, with the balanced mind and what it's like when we're caught by it. Sometimes just the simplicity of noticing, oh, there's anger and I'm caught. You, know, you don't even have to do more of, a, more of a digging. You don't have to do more digging than that. It's like, oh, there's anger and caught. And notice the difference between the mind that's caught and the mind that's not caught. And we can be somewhat at ease when the mind is caught even. Just when we're aware, oh, there's anger and caught, the mind can be a little bit spacious around it. When we're completely caught and it's like there's no space, we're just in the middle of it. But knowing, oh, there's anger and caught. Caught caught is happening. In that kind of exploration, I began to see the mind would actually go between those three states 
Sometimes it would cycle really quickly between those three states. In particular, I saw this around that depression example that I was giving. I was observing the depression. It'd be like, oh, there's the depression. Oh, caught by the depression. Oh, it's gone. Oh, it's back. Oh, caught. Oh, not caught. It's gone. (laughs) Just cycling very quickly. So that uh, seeing caught, not caught, and noticing the difference in the mind in those two situations. So mostly what I hope to encourage with this talk is have fun getting to know your difficult states. Play. (laughs) This is the playground. (laughs) Explore curiosity. It actually, when, when I finally get to the place, you know, it, it, it takes some time sometimes with particularly difficult patterns. It's like sometimes it can be like, it's got the, that kind of feeling of resistance going into it. It's like, okay, I have to look at this. But when I, I surrender, it's like, no, this is the path. This is what's going on. It can get very interesting. And it can be fun to watch the, the play of the mind And the other thing we start to see as we do that are the wholesome qualities that are being developed while we do that. We start to see the growth of mindfulness. We start to see the growth of wisdom. We start to see the growth of love, of compassion, of um, calm, of interest. And the mind can take a lot of delight in that, in seeing those states grow. So simultaneously, we're cultivating the wholesome and the understanding that we're cultivating allows the abandoning to happen. So let's sit for a moment. 